Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is June the 15th, 2022. As always, I'm talking to you from San Francisco, a far cry from San Francisco, uh, a, a far cry from Scandinavia. We always seem to have Scandinavian conversations on this show. Yesterday, uh, the Financial Times writer Simon Cooper came on the show uh, to argue he has a new book out called Chums, that Britain needs to be more like Scandinavia, more of a meritocracy. Uh, we need to learn how to talk about talk about ourselves in a more reasonable way. Um, the Scandinavian model seems to be one that everyone wants to emulate. We even did a show with the historian Kat Jarman on the Vikings. It's a best-selling book, River Kings. It's a lovely book, and I had a great chat with Kat. But it seems as if there's a kind of cult of all things Scandinavian. And of course, when it comes to cults, the business of keen on is undermining them. And we're going to have a conversation today with my guest, uh, Lola Akimade Okerström, who, who is talking to us from uh, Sweden. Uh, she is a remarkable woman, a photographer, writer. Um, her new book, In uh, Every Mirror, She's Black, uh, is a best-selling book. It's just out in paperback. Uh, she's also the author uh, of a book called uh, Lagom, The Swedish Secret of Living Well. But I think according to Lola, the Swedes don't quite live as well as they might like to think and as we think. And I'm thrilled that Lola is joining us from Stockholm, which is, I think, a particularly beautiful city in the summer. Lola, uh, you had uh, two uh, two pieces in the New York Times which caught my attention recently. The first on a, a social media takedown, the so-called Sweden Gate, and then something about racism in, in, um, in Scandinavia. You are a, a Nigerian. Um, you were born, I think, in Nigeria. So you have some experience of Africa, too. You live now in Sweden. Does this perfectionism of the Swedes, this idea that they're the best place in the world, maybe not so much seen within Sweden, but certainly from the outside, does it get on your nerves? Well, I mean, I am a travel writer as well. So I always write about the amazing things to explore and experience, you know, wherever I go, including the Nordics. But Sweden is not one dimensional, right? And it's 2022. Each time I keep traveling, I keep getting met with this one dimensional image of the Nordics. And I wanted to share a more balanced view, right? It's a multi-complex society with also issues that it needs to address. And two things can be true, right? You can have so many amazing attributes, but you could also have things that need to be fixed. And by sweeping the things you need to fix under the rug, that's not going to make you a stronger, you know, person. It's actually not going. It's going to make your strengths uh, come into question. And so that is why I'm coming in with somebody wearing two different hats, right? Someone that writes about all the amazing things that Sweden has to offer, but also showing that it's also uh, the Swedish experience is not monolithic. These are some real issues that need to be addressed. And by showing its vulnerability, by showing that, you know, what's not perfect, that's what creates, you know, I think that the Nordics have 
for a long time fought the stereotype of being this cold, distant nation, which isn't really true. But it's when you keep not showing your weaknesses to the world and only sit on your strengths, right? That's what creates that disconnect because all human beings are flaws. So that's kind of what made this Sweden Gates uh, kind of fiasco escalate to the point where... Let, let's talk a little bit about the um, this thing called Sweden Gate, which seems a little bit of a storm in a teacup to me. Here's a Washington Post piece about why... Do the Swedes actually not feed their young guests? All this scandal arose because of a, a post, I think, on Reddit that suggested that Swedish families don't feed young guests when they come over. Is is that fair? Well, see, it was actually an opportunity to talk about things that the country didn't want to talk about over decades, right? So we all know, I mean, people feed kids. It's not that people leave kids to serve, right? And showing that weakness in the culture a little bit, people were quick to jump on it to say, aha, we knew you weren't perfect. But what that did was it led to a bigger, more important discussion on inclusion, on exclusion, on integration versus assimilation that needed to be had that wasn't really happening in Sweden. And so in a sense, that's why I wrote that piece about it being a blessing in disguise that Sweden can use the opportunity to actually just take itself less seriously, right? Admit its weaknesses, still celebrating its strengths, but also showing that it's human, right? It's not perfect. Affection is, uh, quote unquote, unachievable. And so just showing that that then shows vulnerability, and that's what creates a connection and opens up opportunities for dialogue. When we show, you know what, we don't know everything, we're also vulnerable, let's talk. So that's a very Swedish thing, um, Lola. It sounds yeah. like you've become a bit of a Swede yourself, this idea of talking things through and whatever happens, we can figure it out and any criticism is is is, is for the best. Um, isn't that a rather well, Swedish no, way of living? really, though. <laughs> In the sense that, I mean, I know it's a consensus culture, but it's also a culture that doesn't like to... Um, face very uncomfortable situations, you know, and that's what Sweden gets kind of opened up. Let's talk about, you know, structural racism. Let's talk about inequality. Let's talk about people not being included, right? And so that those are the difficult conversations. So in a sense, even though it's a consensus culture, we like to kind of make sure everybody is bringing their input. It's actually not going across to all society. You know, it's just a segment that gets that privilege to do that. And so that's why I said, again, it's a, it's a blessing in disguise to actually really talk about issues that are affecting all Swedes, you know, not just white Swedes. So this, this piece um, on so-called Sweden Gate, as you say in, in your New York Times um, op-ed, this social media takedown um, triggered a lot of soul searching, and and you suggest a, a xenophobic backlash, which um, perhaps isn't surprising. How how do sometimes Swedes react to criticism? Do they fall back on their own cultural or perhaps even racial stereotypes? I mean, and I think the world saw that unfortunately play out <laughs> Swedes don't like criticism because um and I write in the article there's something in in Sweden we call Swedes playing 
where when you offer up constructive feedback or constructive criticism, it's often seen as, well, let me explain things to you because you do not understand. And that was what happened with Sweden gets a lot of that um, tendency, and I don't want to generalize, but a lot of that tendency bubbled up to the surface, and then it got to the point, well, you have no voice because you should just be grateful. And that is the bond, you know, that is the problem where, because Sweden has opened its doors uh, for many years to refugees, to, and it's got some generous policies, it's almost like, what do you um, like give up in exchange? Is it your voice? in order to not be able to give valid criticism or constructive feedback. And that was what really added the last quarrel because people are saying, well, if you don't like it here, then just go back home. Instead of saying, you know what, let's actually self-assess because it could just take some little tweaks to make big improvements, right? And there was that big metaphor of, you know, letting people in publicly, you know, so the world sees that you're letting guests in, you open your door, but then what happens when they're in your house? Do you actually really invite them in or do you keep them in a corner? And so Sweden gets really open up, you know, all those kind of painful spots that uh, we haven't been talking about deeply that need to be addressed. So, Again, I don't want to fall into cultural stereotypes, Lola, and you can accuse me if I am, but I'm assuming that this perhaps coldness when it comes to guests it's a very vivid contrast, for example, from where you're from, from Nigeria, where hospitality um, is is absolutely central to the culture and that the idea of having somebody over to your house and not feeding them is just unimaginable. Um, for you, with, with one foot perhaps in, in each continent, one foot in Sweden, one foot in Africa, you're a travel writer, you travel around the world, you're a photographer, you must have felt this cultural issue particularly um, clearly. You must have been both uh, shocked and amused by it, I'm guessing. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not even Nigeria alone, right? Because the way the world jumped on it, because most cultures jumped in and said, well, in my culture, well, in my culture. And that was what also took the conversation to another level was hospitality isn't a cultural thing it's just more a basic human thing you know that even if you are really poor you still offer your little what you have to somebody that you invite in as a guest so that was what um kind of escalated a bit and then of course sweden has uh, hospitable customs thicker right thicker is you know spending breaking several times during the day over coffee over cinnamon buns and pastries to just relax and recalibrate so there was just that um, what was being shown versus what was being happening behind the scenes that kept uh, coming up as conflicting information. And that, again, was what really caused Sweden uh, Gate to kind of blow up is because people were, it was challenging people's already predefined views of a place that could do no wrong and saying, well, wait a minute, if you can do no wrong and you have this amazing uh, or something, what's going on here, right? So again, it was an opportunity for people to just say, you know what, let's have bigger, broader discussions. For me, Sweden Gate has nothing to do with the dinner or invite, inviting kids or not. It just has to do with some questions and fundamental, fundamental issues that society doesn't really want to tackle properly by bringing different voices to the table, by opening up to different voices so we can work on these issues together. 
Lola, you certainly have a different voice. As I as I said, your uh, your book uh, in, in Every Mirror, uh, she's black, is a best selling novel. It's shortlisted for a number of um, prizes. It just came out as a as a paperback. Um, you bring a different perspective, and 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 you remind Swedes also of the I- issue of racism. Again, you're not the first or the last person to do that. But you had an op-ed in the Times a few months ago about bringing up your child, a, a black mom, about what it's like raising a biracial child in Sweden. Is there something particularly? I mean, it's it's tough raising a biracial child anywhere. I, I did a show earlier this week uh, in uh, interviewing a, a, a biracial child of a, a very prominent uh, Nabil Aker, a very prominent uh, jazz musician and a Jewish ballerina. So it's not just unique to, to Sweden. But is there something unusual about Sweden, about bringing up a, a biracial child? So for that piece, it, I wrote it kind of when uh, George Floyd you know, happened when he was murdered and the world was trying to make sense of why uh, this black man was killed. And so in Sweden, especially with the kids, you know, they were, instead of looking at it as, you know, this is something bad that happened, that could happen anywhere, they saw it as we must protect. And so what I wanted to tackle in that piece was this tendency, which also showed up during Sweden Gate, of Sweden saying bad things happen in other places, right? Because we are the, you know, older of human rights, bad things can happen here. La, la, la. And so that was what I was trying to tackle is what are the conversations being had in those different homes, right? Those kind of private homes. Is it that, you know, we are part of the issue and let's kind of get closer or that bad things happen somewhere else? We do not, we do not see color here, you know, as long as everybody quote unquote assimilates, let us integrate, all will be fine. So it's that kind of uh, self-awareness and self-assessment that uh, Sweden, you know, and I don't want to generalize, but in <laughs> loosely general, uh, does a, a poor job of self-assessing itself, you know, as a culture. And that is exactly what happened with Sweden. Sweden gets a lot of people are saying Swedes should have just ruled with it. But the fact that there was this wave of just defensiveness showed that lack of um, self-awareness that, yes, you're not perfect. It's okay to not be perfect. It's actually a good thing not to not be perfect because it shows your humanity to the world. So I really wanted to tackle writing about that racism and also from a place of privilege because growing up in Nigeria, I didn't, you know, my color wasn't thrown back at me. You know, I didn't grow up saying, oh, I'm a black person, I'm a black person. It was when I moved abroad that mm. then my color became a thing, you know, and for me, it didn't make sense. So the privilege I had was growing up without having to have that visuals of saying, you know, my, my color defines my what to me. And so that's what I wanted to tackle in that piece as well, saying that this is what, you know, black kids, mixed kids have to start dealing with at a very young age when people uh, say they don't see color or don't actually talk about issues that affect their lives. So, I love the title of your book, um, Lola, In Every Mirror, She's Black. It's a novel. Perhaps you might say something about the book um, and, 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 and how you chose that title. Well, absolutely. So uh, the title was originally Afro-Sweet, but uh, when we went through the publication process, it ended up being In Every Mirror, She's Black, which was a more mm. fitting title, which mm. said that no matter my background, my values, 
what I like, what I don't like, what I'm bringing into a culture, into a place, the first thing people see is that I'm a black woman. They just see my skin. And then they meet me with all the stereotypes that the world has crafted on my behalf. So imagine that burden, waking up every day, going out as a black woman, and then facing all these stereotypes that people have already crafted on your behalf. And that's what I also put in that opinion piece. Because Swiss got really defensive and I said, yes, I know how it feels to have your narrative run from you and be decided and crafted by others. And, uh, you know, even and based on stereotypes. So the novel follows the lives of three very different black women who end up in Sweden for three very different reasons, but they are all loosely connected to an influential white Swedish man. And, you know, one of them comes in for work. The other one comes for love, and the other one comes for as a refugee. And the story kind of follows their lives, how they try to find belonging and acceptance and a sense of identity in what I call the most open society around by the most fragile people. I mentioned, Lola, that you're also a photographer. I mean, you do so many things. It's remarkable. I don't quite know how you have the time to do it. Um, and thinking about that title, In Every Mirror, She's Black, that could, of course, apply, as you suggested, to you. And as a photographer... There's something unusually white about Sweden. I mean, when you look at some of your images, this of a church, this of um, uh, a dog sledding, uh, this one uh, traditional uh, 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 in, uh, in the north, in the Arctic part of Sweden. As a black female photographer, is there something weird about photographing whiteness in such a dramatic way in, in Sweden where everything is snow? Well, I mean, those three photos are just wintertime photos, right? I mean, mm. Sweden, again, is a lot more uh, dimensional. And in I know, but I pick these so out because I, I, yes, I, I, I know you do more. And in yeah. fact, uh, there's lots of other, uh, for people who yeah. want to see your photos, they're but, great. They should go to your website. But, but I think one of the things you see right away in my photos is I use a lot of color and I use a lot of contrast. And that's because that's what, I, I used to be an oil painter. That's what my eye sees when I edit really sharp contrast, lots of vivid colors, but also how I grew up, right? Um, I, I recently saw a group of photos that were shot in Lagos by a Swedish photographer. And when I saw those photos, amazing photos, but the way they were edited had a very Scandinavian feel to the way those photos were edited. And then with my photos from the north, the way I edit is very vibrant and I contrast, you know, that's not very Scandinavian. Right? right? And that's also showing my roots, saying that, you know, that's the way I process the world as an African mm -hmm. photographer. And, that's, and that brings lots of different kinds of images to places that uh, would have come, you know, back with like a muted palette, uh, edited shot. But that also shows that I have a visual voice as a photographer. And that's why we have to diversify who gets to tell the stories of a place visually to words because that's what creates a fuller picture of a place right so right that's and, like, and here's yeah. a picture actually from nigeria of yours which is again i don't want to avoid stereotypes but as you might suggest it's a very nigerian photo well it's very vibrant and, and right. like i said the vibrancy comes from me growing up in a vibrant culture but also just me as an oil painter so you can see other African photographers that may just have a more simple, muted, monotone style of editing. So just 
my own work, the vibrancy that I contrast is just tied more to me as an oil painter because that's what I like to, that's what my eyes uh, sees. That's how I see the world, very vivid and vibrant. And, uh, and Lola, do you, and, and I'm not sure how, how all this works, but do you import your photography to your 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 non-fiction op-eds to your fiction or is your is are you primarily a writer do you bring your writing skills to your photography or is there just lola in the middle of it and it's just the nature of things that you sometimes are you wear lots of different hats sometimes you write op-eds sometimes you write political stuff sometimes you write fiction sometimes you take photos yeah so i call myself a storyteller and so the medium doesn't matter as long as I choose the right medium to tell the story I want to tell. So if I want to tell a story through words and I feel like, you know, just writing really descriptively flowery prose is what's going to get that story across, then I write a story, right? I write a, you know, creative uh, travel narrative or an opinion piece. Sometimes the photo just taking a shot, you know, photo that has all the answers answers all the questions in one shot sometimes works better. So for me, that's the privilege of being able to be a storyteller that moves different through different mediums. You know, it could be painting, it could be photography, it could be writing, and it could be all sorts of writing. But it's, for me, the platform of the, you know, doesn't matter. It's more what I'm trying to express and what the story needs best uh, to fully actualize. Now, let's end. Uh, we began with Sweden. Let's end with Sweden. As I said, uh, did a show earlier with this week, yesterday, actually, with Simon Cooper arguing that leadership doesn't matter and that the best models, the Scandinavian model, for example, uh, have low-key leaders and these are societies that work. I'm, feel, I'm sure most of our guests wouldn't be able to guess the Swedish prime minister. I have to admit I had to look it up, Magdalena Andersson. Uh, but she's been in the news recently because of the debate in Scandinavia that the Ukraine war has sparked about Swedish membership of NATO, Swedish, what uh, one Washington Post uh, writer called Sweden's faux neutrality. Uh, Sweden now with Finland talking about joining NATO. Um has the you the war in Ukraine changed, you think, Sweden's sense of itself? Has it convinced Swedes that they can't remain this perfect, non-aligned country, uh, that they have to choose sides? Yeah, I, I think so, you know, and, and I think, you know, not to go back to Sweden Gate, but Sweden Gate also showed some of the country's kind of unsavory past, you know, some of its ties to colonialism and just some of the things that it wants to hide. And so this is forcing all these discussions and conversations. Really, it's just forcing Sweden to be honest with itself, to say, you know what, um, because a lot of people do not know its own, their own history, right? They're like, no, we weren't taught this in school or this is a lie. You know, foreigners are saying it's a lot, you know, to, to do this, to bring us down, to quote unquote tarnish our image. But really, it's not true. It's about just, you know, what saying, breathing out saying you know what i'm not perfect yes i'm a leader in all of these things that have to do with social welfare and you know quality of life but you know what we need help too and i think that is what will make and that's why i say it's a blessing in these guys is when you can say you know what we need help too we need support and we don't know everything that is what makes you more endearing 
you know, to people, to each other, when we see that vulnerable vulnerability, you know, in each other, that uh, we don't know everything. So I think this is a time of reckoning for the country to really assess its values, assess and be really honest. Just have honest, honest transparent conversations with itself. Do you think that honesty will extend to re-evaluating Sweden's role during the Second World War? It had what one might think of as a, a faux neutrality, certainly was not uh, very controversial. There were heroic Swedes like Raoul Wallenberg, uh, but most uh, Sweden sat out the Second World War. It was very fortunate, I guess, in many ways. But a lot of accusations against Sweden that they essentially took the German side. Is this still a debate in Sweden? Do you think it's something that the Swedes need to talk about as the Americans need to perhaps talk about the history of slavery and civil war? You know what? I mean, I I don't know. I, I think they should. I think the more you're transparent about your past and be honest and open, I think the better the soil, you know, and when I say the social soil, because you're trying to get people to assimilate, quote unquote, versus integrate, you know, and if you're not, if that, if there isn't that transparency, I think it can cause problems, it is causing problems, and also understanding that, I, I think, from moving away from politics, because my strength is in culture, right, and so how, just how society works is, um, Sweden wants assimilation versus integration, and these are two different things. Assimilation mm. says, give up who you are to be like me, and that's a very big ask. Integration says, as long as you follow my rules, respect my values, I can make space for who you are. That's together, we can be better. But that's where the conversation is kind of causing uh, a lot of fire, is that assimilation versus integration debate that really needs to add transparency. Mm. And you haven't assimilated, Lola, have you? I mean, you're, I think <laughs> no, in your work, in, in, no, like in your novel, in Every Mirror, She's yes. Black, in your photography, you are yes. a unique voice, a unique eye. Congratulations on that. And congratulations on both the book, his success, and it, and it just launched as a paperback uh, earlier this month. So there's no excuse now for anyone not to read it. What else should people be reading, Lola, these days? Anything else uh, in oh, addition to uh, In Every Mirror, She's Black? What are you reading? What am I reading? Oh, there are so many amazing uh, books uh, I'm reading. I mean, I just finished Wahala uh, by Nikki May, but what I am reading is just a lot more contemporary stories about the Black experience, right? Because we tend to see two different types of stories where it's either rooted in history or still a lot of trauma or at the other end, Black joy. But what about the everyday experience of the contemporary Black woman in the Nordics? You know, in Europe, we see a lot about it in the US and the UK. So that's the space I'm reading more of. And that's the space where we need more people to share their voices and their stories.